Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome to Talking Business, a podcast produced in Melbourne, Australia. The podcast is available on the ACAST app, the Apple Podcast Store, or wherever you go to get your podcasts. Or you can get it at the Business Acumen website at www.businessacumen.biz. I am Leon Gettler. My job is to review and monitor the week's news in business, finance and economics. I bring it all to you every week. This is episode number 24 in our series for 2021, and today's date is Friday, July the 16th. First, I'll be talking to Lucy Piper, Director for Work for Climate, a world-first Australian climate change program offering tools and resources for professionals to accelerate corporations to net zero emissions. And I'll be talking to RMIT economist Sinclair Davidson about the growing level of government debt and the intergenerational report. But now let's hear from Lucy Piper. Okay, Lucy, tell us about Work for Climate. Yeah, workforclimate.org. Okay, so Work for Climate is a brand new platform that is designed to help individual professionals drive ambitious climate initiatives within their organisation. I, I joined Work for Climate because I was working as a professional and I was in a fairly climate progressive organisation at the time. I'd been working at a company called Intrepid Travel for almost a decade and had learned so much about really excellent business initiatives, particularly in the climate space. And I think something that happened to me when I came back from parental leave, which I think happens to a number of people is that my deep urgency about the climate crisis was was really galvanized and I felt like I had to do more than continue working in an already climate progressive business and I wanted to go out and see if I could make a difference in more businesses and more industries and at the same time I was introduced to a man called Brian Rollins and along with the Sunrise Project he had just founded this initiative called Work for Climate And the concept being that there would be hundreds, thousands of professionals like me who are feeling this deep urgency about climate and are doing a lot of things in their own personal lives to reduce their impact, but who know that if their corporation did more, it would have a much bigger impact and it would move the needle much quicker. And Brian had been thinking about how could you help corporations achieve their climate goals via employee action and how could you kind of scale that and had built this prototype platform called Work for Climate. And the idea behind Work for Climate is we've developed four simple but significant goals that can help a corporation accelerate their transition out of fossil fuels as rapidly as possible. And they do that by working with their employees I think this is a a slight segue, but I think that 
I heard a quote saying that some of the smartest brains in the world right now are working on things like how to get people to click on ads. And imagine if you could get those minds working on getting corporations to move on climate. Imagine how much faster we could get the, the corporate sector to shift. And that's basically the idea behind Work for Climate. It's inspiring and engaging employees to make climate their day job when they go to work every day. And how does it work for corporations? The way that it works with corporations is, I'll give you one of our four goals, for example, which is switching to 100% renewable energy. So imagine you're a professional and you're going to work and you want your company, it's a big ASX listed company, and you want them to be doing more uh, to have a positive impact on climate. And you know that switching to renewable energy is one of the fastest actions a company can take. So what that individual would do with Work for Climate is they would download our renewable energy playbook and follow the steps through what we believe it takes to get a company to shift. And the way that we've written these playbooks is we've gone out and spoken to dozens of professionals inside corporations who have already driven these changes successfully. And we've tried to essentially codify it into a playbook. I think because one of the things that happens with any business that goes out on a limb and tries to make these progressive changes is that it's like it's the first time it's ever been done. There's not really yet a great deal of sharing between different industries and different corporations on how to achieve these climate goals. So we're trying to help employees learn from other employees who successfully led these changes. So how do you identify the professionals in corporations to get those corporations to be climate friendly? Ideally, you would want lots and lots of people. And I think there's certainly inspiration can be taken from the stories of Amazon and Google, for instance, where they've really, like a, a, a large group of employees have been inspired to organize and take action internally. But I think that that's not always going to be realistic across every corporation. So what we're trying to do is find one or two really motivated, energized professionals inside an organization and help them find out, okay, what's the data that I need to gather to build this business case? Who's going to be an appropriate sponsor for this business case at the C-suite level? How can I get a couple of people working with me on this? It's not necessarily about building large numbers. It's about being very strategic and purposeful in how you build and present a business case to drive an initiative. Your mission is to accelerate the corporate transition away from fossil fuels by guiding businesses and employees to commit to climate goals across four categories, energy, emissions, money and lobbying, that will ultimately have a positive impact on the planet and their business. That's a great question. I think that lobbying can be one of the simplest or one of the most complex goals for a corporation to tackle. But in terms of simplicity, lobbying could be as simple as an employee or several employees approaching their corporation with their business case or with their pitch, for example, and saying, look, we need to use our name, our brand, our, our advocacy, if you like, and we need to be making a public pledge or we need to be using our memberships of 
councils and organisations to be able to really lobby for progressive climate policy where possible. So the ultimate goal is to create some momentum among corporations to become more climate friendly. Absolutely. And then momentum gains the more organisations get on board and it becomes almost a competitive piece as well. If If your competitors are coming out and making big statements and advocating for progressive climate policy, then you're going to be a laggard if you're not meeting that standard. So what sort of impact has Work for Climate had? Well, we've just we launched last week, actually. So it's very early days, but we have some great success stories from our test cohorts that we've been running in the past six months. So coming from very entrepreneurial business backgrounds, so the founders from Atlassian and I'm from Intrepid, and we are very much a startup team of entrepreneurs. We run small tests, get people on board, get them trying out the content, see if they can get any traction internally. They give us their feedback. We'll refine the content and the tools, and then we'll put it out there again. So we're getting great feedback on the actual tools that we're providing. And as of this week, we are now launching to to the public and trying to really inspire professionals out there that want to be doing more in their day job and saying, look, here is something that you can do. Here is a way for you to take action. Here is a way for you to reduce your anxiety about climate and put your professional skills to work. Of course, all of this is happening at a time when the government is agonising over moving to a net zero emissions by 2050. Hmm. Don't get me started. (laughs) So how will this influence legislation? Leon, the thing that will really progress momentum in this space is that ultimately every business needs to move to a zero emissions renewable economy. It is happening. It will become regulated and legislated at a certain point in time. So if businesses aren't moving now, they are going to find themselves playing catch up down the track. And what we're trying to do at Work for Climate is help businesses move faster using employee action and employee engagement as the vehicle and as the way to facilitate that change. Figure out how to utilise the greatest minds that are already inside your business to create the roadmaps that you're going to need to create anyway. The, The net zero challenge, if you like, a lot of businesses are making public commitments to net zero but have no idea how they're going to achieve that. Well, look, There are people inside your organization already who can help you figure that out. And we want to help those people connect with the right experts to get it done faster. We're all about kind of condensing the time that it's going to take and just make it happen faster. So ultimately, work for climate is turning professionals into climate warriors. But yeah, I think it is. I think it is. And I think that A lot of the feedback that we've had whilst we've been testing out the tools and the frameworks, we originally thought that this concept was about talking to professionals who don't work in sustainability or ESG roles. We really thought this was about marketing managers and product directors and sales managers. But what we found is that sustainability professionals are coming to us and saying, I'm mandated to make these changes. The company I work for has already made a net zero commitment. They want us to switch to 100% renewable energy and they want me to do it. But I don't have the resources. I don't have necessarily the technical experience in this space yet. Like it's big, big initiatives. 
and they want help. They want to be able to figure out how to call on other parts of the organization to be able to drive those changes. So we want to help sustainability professionals kind of beef up the more this is how to drive the initiative throughout the organization. And then we want to engage with professionals who are used to influencing change, but apply their skills to the technical challenge of the climate crisis. Well, Lucy, we'll be watching Work for Climate closely and great work and all the best of luck. Thank you so much, Leon. This was great. And now let's hear from RMIT economist Sinclair Davidson. Well, Sinclair, you've had some views about our debt levels. Well, I think it's gone from bad to worse. If, if, if you've noticed over the years, I've always been saying Australia's got far too much debt. We've got far too high budget deficits. It made sense, I suppose, after the global financial crisis to go into deficits and to accumulate a lot of debt. But as you recall, I argued for many years that we should very quickly have returned back to budget surpluses and started paying down that debt. Um, that, of course, didn't happen. Uh, we, we had a government, certainly the Labor government and then the coalition government, more or less both had the same strategy of we were going to grow our way back into surplus. And if you recall, the year before last, Frydenberg basically said uh, we we're back in surplus this year, which, of course, never happened because COVID happened. And next thing, we were back in deficit again. So this year, for example, our budget deficit is going to be $106 billion. Our gross debt is going to be $963 billion. Our net debt is going to be $729 billion. Those are all with Bs. So the, the, the amount of debt that the federal government has accumulated has actually exploded. Now, again, people can reasonably say, well, COVID was unexpected. JobKeeper was actually a good policy. When the government locked everything down in, in March and April of last year, a lot of people were going to have absolutely no income. The government replaced people's income, making sure that they still had some money to live. That was a good policy, which actually prevented the social fabric of our society from unraveling. And of course, because we were in deficit, we had to borrow that money. But fast forward into the future, the government has increased spending, not just in on infrastructure and roads and bridges and things like this that you could imagine you would borrow money for. They've actually increased debt in order to finance consumption expenditure. So we are not borrowing in order to build a better future where we can say, here are assets that we can grow back into. In actual fact, we are borrowing money as a society to spend on ourselves, which of course will be paid back by future generations. And uh, um, I imagine they're going to be pretty unhappy about that. So I think our debt situation has gone from bad to worse. It's pushing close to a trillion dollars. It is, and it's going up. So if, if you have a look at the budget forecasts, it's not like it's maxed out. You know, I, I, I could have imagined if we said we were going to borrow all this money to pay for JobKeeper and, 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 and JobSeeker and all those, you know, limited emergency COVID measures that were brought in last year, well, you would expect the, the debt to start going down again, but it actually hasn't. Um, the other thing that, 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 are, that, that is worrying me is the disconnect that what I see with my own eyes and government figures where they say the economy is roaring back. I don't see the economy roaring back at all. Uh, when I catch a train into work in the CBD of a morning, I have a choice of seats on my train. That's never happened to me before. You, you, you kind of squeeze in where you can, and some days if they just poured in the oil, we'd all be sardines. 
Nowadays, I, I sometimes share a whole train, a train carriage with like four or five other people. Uh, when I go into the CBD, which is supposed to be the heart of our economic activity in the city, I see many places shuttered up. I see many places gone. So the, the disconnect between the micro level, where you see insolvency figures going up, and the macro level is actually quite jarring. The other thing that when I see the, the government say the economy is roaring back, you know, we're back to where we were, people forget that there's actually a year of lost economic activity in between where we were and where we are now. So I guesstimate that um, even though our GDP level might be the same as what it was in December of 2019, or our unemployment level might be the same as where it was in December 2019, in actual fact, there's about a $100 billion dollars of lost economic activity. Now, if we're gonna say we have roared back, not only must we get back to where we were, we must recover what we have lost, that one billion, uh, that $100 billion, plus we have to pay off our COVID debts that we, that, that we accumulated, which is $291 billion. Uh, the other point too, is that the economy was not traveling that well pre-COVID? No, no. We, 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 we've actually had a, a, a sluggish period of economic growth since the global financial crisis. Now, I, th I think economists are going to argue about this for decades, why this happened. Um, you know, it's, it's all sorts of things um, happened during that period. All sorts of changes to the economy occurred during that period. And we're going to be arguing about that. So that, that's going to keep academic economists in work for a long, long time. So I'm, I'm not ungrateful for that. Um, but at the same time, as, as, as a citizen, I, I am very concerned because productivity growth over the last 10 years prior to COVID was very sluggish in Australia. Indeed, indeed. And the uh, budget, and for that matter, the intergenerational report, shows that we're going to be looking at deficits for the decades, 40 years. decades to come. Yes, so, so looking at the intergenerational report, and, and, and let me just start off by saying I'm always very suspicious of people who try to forecast out 40 years. But, but okay, let's, let's take that as given. What the, the, the Treasury have done is they have put the current policy uh, framework and environment into their models and simply extrapolated out into the future. And it boils down to there isn't going to be a budget surplus in the next 40 years on the current policy setting, which means one of two things. One, we have to cut expenditure or two, we have to increase taxation or, of course, always the, the combination of these two things. Now, I'm not sure how, how increasing taxation is necessarily going to work because at the same time, the international environment, the OECD, have come out with this uh, uh, tax cartel idea that the, the Biden administration is pushing, where they're talking about more or less a 15% tax rate. Now, the Australian government tax rate right now is double that. Not only is it double that, is unlike most other countries, Australia actually raises a lot of revenue via the, tax, the corporate tax system because of our franking dividend system. So this is actually a good thing. Now, um, I'm not suggesting we should have a 30% tax rate, but nonetheless, Australia raises a lot of money. If we are now being pressured internationally to lower our corporate tax rate to something closer to 15%, that means that we're either going to have to increase indirect taxation, which is the GST, which is right now for the last 20 years has been the third rail in Australian politics. Anybody who's talked about increasing the GST immediately gets, gets, gets shot, uh, shot down, shut down. People are angry about it. 
um, or raising personal income tax rates, which of course are scheduled to be reduced for everybody, have been reduced for lower income earners. Um, so the, the, the government is in a bit of a bind there. And when it comes to spending, as Milton Friedman has said, uh, there's nothing as, temp as permanent as a temporary government spending program. Um, we are spending money on our own consumption. Now, of course, people can also say, gee, think you've been very heartless here because we're spending money on, on welfare, we're spending money on the care economy, we're spending money on the national disability insurance scheme and what have you. Um, you know, how could you possibly think to cut that spending? But the challenge there is we are not spending money wisely. We look at all our societal problems and throw money at it. Uh, we actually need to simultaneously be thinking, can we get a better bang for buck on our government spending than we are currently getting? And so it, it's not just a case of we can borrow at a very low interest rate and just throw money at things. Um, we should actually be thinking a lot smarter about how we are spending money because the low interest rates are actually not an indicator of debt. Uh, the burden of debt indicator is what we have to give up in the future when we pay it back. And that we can't know now. Uh, what we can know is yeah, uh, people are willing to lend the Australian government money at very low rates of interest because they know they're going to get their money back. That's very nice. But what value are we getting? And uh, indeed, the issue with debt too is that eventually interest rates will increase. I mean, the... Fed is talking about raising interest rates. The RBA, for its uh, ideology, is saying, oh, not before 2024, but uh, the Commonwealth Bank is saying November 2023, and eventually rates yes. will go up. Now, how will that affect the debt levels? Well, depending upon how good or bad we are being at paying down the debt in the meantime, um, a lot of that debt's going to be rolling over, but rolling over at very higher levels of, of, of interest rates. So the, the interest rate now is an indicator of what people think now the future is going to be looking like, but tomorrow that could change. I mean, it's, it's, I'm, I'm also a bit suspicious of saying, you know, we're going to start raising interest rates one or two years into the future. We might be raising interest rates in the next six months because we don't know what inflation figures are going to be looking like coming out of the United States. Um, so, you know, in, in, in the same way that we have in politics events, uh, you know, events, dear boy, happen, um, in economics, we have exactly the same thing too. All of a sudden, a bad inflation number could all of a sudden get people scrambling. And bearing in mind, we could actually get into a, a vicious cycle of inflation because as interest rates rise, all that sea of money which American banks have been sitting on for the last 10 years could suddenly get pumped into the system. So we could actually find ourselves in a very vicious cycle very, very quickly. So I, I think this is a very dangerous time for the future. And we are actually very, very ill prepared because we are at the limits of how much we can possibly borrow from the future to finance our current expenditure. And indeed, inflation is now showing signs of rising around the world. It is, it is indeed. Bearing in mind, part of that is actually just changes in prices because supply chains have been uh, disrupted. So I am... I'm looking at that total increase in, in, in price index levels and saying, okay, some of this is actually what I would expect because of, of disruption to supply chains, but a lot of it is also going to be literally the value of money is falling because we are spending money on, on, on poorly thought through projects. Well, Sinclair, that's all a lot of food for thought and thank you very much for your time. Thank you so much. So what's happening in the news? Well, billionaire Richard Branson's long-awaited test flight to space, taken alongside five of his Virgin Galactic Holdings employees, bolsters the company's plan to debut tourism trips next year. 
The VSS Unity space plane detached from a carrier aircraft high over New Mexico and rocketed to a speed of Mach 3 on its way to an altitude of 282,000 feet or more than 53 miles or 86 kilometres above the Earth. The Unity then glided back through sunny skies and landed about 9.38am local time on Sunday, approximately an hour after taking off. The suborbital journey kicks off a landmark month for the future of space tourism, with Branson looking to demonstrate Virgin Galactic's capabilities nine days before Amaxo.com founder, Inc. founder Jeff Bezos plans to fly on a rocket made by Blue Origin, his space venture. Both companies envision businesses catering to wealthy tourists willing to pay top dollar for a short period of weightlessness and unforgettable view of the Earth and heavens. Virgin Galactic's test flight demonstrated that such trips, once the stuff of science fiction, are becoming increasingly realistic. And Prime Minister Scott Morrison has announced an increase to the emergency disaster payment from $325 to $375 for people who have lost up to 20 hours of work and from $500 to $600 for people who have lost more than 20 hours of work due to the COVID-19 outbreak in Sydney. Mr Morrison also announced a jointly funded payment of between $1,500 and $10,000 a week to businesses that could demonstrate a 30% decline in turnover. The payment will be contingent on companies maintaining their current staffing levels and will be paid to a maximum of 40% of a business's payroll. The new payment will cost half a billion dollars a week, which will be funded equally by the New South Wales Government and the Commonwealth. Mr Morrison said the likely protracted lockdown in Sydney required a new response. And Australia will target running the electricity grid entirely from solar and wind generation by 2025, under a 100% renewable target laid out by the power system operator, which has also backed Snowy Hydro's controversial New South Wales gas plant, saying the fossil fuel has a vital place in the energy mix. The ambitious goal, putting the nation on track to lead the world transitioning to clean energy, has been set by the new boss of the Australian energy market operator, Daniel Westerman, who said it would mark uncharted territory for the country as it works out how to integrate more renewables into the power system as old coal plants face retirement. Renewables accounted for nearly a quarter of system supplies in 2020, up from 21% in 2019, with coal and gas generating 73% of grid needs. But the AMO said that a system needs to be built that can handle instant renewable penetration of up to 100% when solar and wind are running at capacity. Australia's abundance of sunshine and wind, its proximity to energy-hungry customers in Asia and its expertise in world-scale gas exports put the country in the box seat when it comes to green hydrogen exports, Westerman said. In the domestic space, cheap, low-carbon energy will provide stimulus for the economy, fueling the growth needed to eliminate debt built up because of a COVID-19 pandemic. And Melbourne and Sydney CBDs will take four years or more to pass their pre-pandemic economic levels as a city country's cities are smashed by, by lockdowns, analysis by Deloitte Access Economics has found. The forecast suggests the level of people employed and working in Brisbane and Perth will return to their 2019 levels during 2023. In Adelaide, employment is forecast to return to pre-COVID levels at the start of 2026, the very end of Deloitte's five-year forecast horizon. But Deloitte found that of all the states and territories, Victoria had been hardest hit by the COVID-19 pandemic. The analysis, which looked at where employees are located to account for the working-from-home phenomenon, suggests the pandemic has caused a surge in remote working that has persisted even after lockdowns have been lifted. Separate data collected by Royal Morgan and Uber Media mobile devices showed Sydney's CBD movement fell by 89% two weeks ago from pre-pandemic February 2020 averages after lockdown measures were imposed. Melbourne's movement levels remained almost 80% down the week of June 28, or around 20% of February 2020 averages, despite its restrictions being lifted, an illustration of the lingering impact of lockdowns. 
Iconic Melbourne rooftop bar Madame Brussels will become the latest victim of the pandemic when it closes its doors next week after 15 years. The Deloitte analysis finds that Melbourne CBD is forecast to return to its pre-COVID-19 peak of around $74 billion in the second half of 2024, a recovery timeline of four years. Employment of people working in Sydney is not forecast to reach its pre-COVID levels within the five-year forecast horizon. However, Sydney is forecast to get back to within 1% or 3,400 workers of pre-COVID-19 levels, a much narrower gap than the 5.6% of 19,700 workers below pre-COVID-19 forecast from Melbourne employment by the start of 2025. But the new Deloitte analysis does not account for Melbourne's fourth lockdown last month. Sydney's current ongoing restrictions offer potential future lockdowns, suggesting the recovery could take even longer. Greater Sydney's lockdown could cost the national economy $1 billion per week, according to AMP Capital Chief Economist Shane Oliver. New South Wales, being the largest state economy, accounts for one-third of Australia's output. The longer it remains in lockdown, the more time it will take for the national economy to recover and slow progress in reducing unemployment, especially because the hardest-hit workers and businesses can no longer rely on the JobKeeper safety net. For Dr Oliver, however, the silver lining is he does not expect Sydney's lockdown to drag on for as long as that. That would mean New South Wales' economy, and by definition the national economy, will not suffer a $15 billion hit like Victoria did last year. Dr Oliver expects the lockdown to have a significant impact on the pace of the country's economic recovery in 2021. He believes Australia's GDP growth may slow down to 4% this year, a downgrade from his previous forecast of 4.5%. AMP's analysis reflects findings by KPMG Chief Economist Brendan Ryan that showed Sydney's lockdown is currently losing about $150 million a day. And consumers face significant delays in price hikes for imported goods ahead of the Christmas rush, as the freight industry warns tough new international arrival caps could force airlines flying cargo to consider pulling out of the Australian market. The Morrison government is considering further extending its $780 million international freight assistance mechanism scheme designed to keep open global airlinks during the pandemic. Freight experts say more assistance and planning is needed to avoid shortages of key goods, including tours and car parks. National Cabinet's savage cuts to the international arrivals are due to come into force on Wednesday, halving the cap to just 3,035 people arriving in the country per week. And COVID smashed the pay packets of Australian chief executives, with remuneration last financial year falling to its lowest level since 2007. Median fixed pay for the ASX 100 CEOs fell 5.1% to $1.68 million, less than before the GFC over a decade ago, according to the report titled CEO Pay in ASX Companies. The research from the Australian Council of Superannuation Investors, tracking 20 years of pay packets, found one-third of top executives at ASX 100 companies, the 100 most valuable listed on the stock exchange, received no bonus in 2020. The peak body of largely industry super investors has over $1 trillion in assets and owns, on average, 10% of every company in the ASX 200, according to the report. Many top executives are paid with shares or bonuses that are deferred for years to promote long-term thinking. Realised pay is cash salary plus pay equity that vested during the year, and in the reporting period it fell 3.6% to $3.99 million for CEOs of ASX 100 companies. For the bosses of the second 100 most valuable companies, it dropped 22% to below $1.79 million. And bonuses of blue-chip company bosses took the biggest hit on the record last year, with nearly a third of ASX 100 CEOs receiving no annual boost to their base salary. Some 31 ASX 100 chiefs received no annual bonus in 2020, double the number from the year before. Among them were those running businesses savaged by the coronavirus epidemic, including Alan Joyce of Qantas, Jeff Calbert of Sydney Airports and Graham Turner of Flight Centre. 
Other chiefs to receive no bonuses were Brad Banducci of Woolworths, former AMP boss Francesco de Ferrari, Susan Lloyd Hovitz of Mervac, and Bendigo Adelaide Bank's Marnie Baker. The median bonus size for CEOs who did receive a short-term incentive payments fell to 31% of the maximum possible payout, down from 60% in 2019, a survey by Australian Council of Superannuation Investors found. And banks are closing more than three branches each week as foot traffic plummets and customers go online. The big four banks have closed or plan to close 350 branches between January 2020 and Christmas 2021 as foot traffic in once busy areas plummet and the shift to digital accelerates. The figure has been revealed in answers to questions on notice from a parliamentary committee tasked with reviewing the four majors and contains 50 more closures from the finance sector union last estimated in April. According to the data, the big four have closed or plan to close branches at a rate of around three a week. ANZ is leading the charge with the closure of 145 branches, followed by Westpac with 80, NAB with 72 and Commonwealth Bank with 53. The closures leave ANZ customers with a total of 425 physical branches they can visit to conduct their banking. Unlike customers from rival banks, they're unable to do their banking at Australia Post locations after the bank balked at a $22 million a year access fee in 2018. Finance Sector Union National Secretary Julia Angrisano said the shift to digital had been overstated by the banks, with the crisis being used as a smokescreen to close more branches and prop up profits. And the Prudential Regulator wants banks to be prepared for zero and negative interest rates and has called on them to take all reasonable steps to ensure their technology systems can deal with the extreme monetary policy settings. The Australian Prudential Regulation Authority said it wrote to banks seven months ago, asking them to tell the regulator if they would have any issues implementing negative interest rates. The Reserve Bank has said a negative cash rate would be highly unlikely in Australia, but such a setting could support economic activity by keeping downward pressure on borrowing rates and exchange rates. And the owner of Bunnings and Kmart has made a bid for the group behind Priceline to branch to pharmacies and beauty stores for the first time. West Farmers, which also owns Target and Officeworks, announced on Monday that it lobbed an offer to Australian pharmaceutical industries of $1.38 cash per share, valuing it at $68 million. The proposal has already won the backing of API's biggest shareholder, Washington H. Sol Patterson, which is best known for its pharmacies, but has broader investments, including TPG Telecom, giving West Farmers an immediate 19.3% stake. Thousands of community pharmacies have been keen to play a role in Australia's COVID-19 vaccine rollout, but are only doing so in some jurisdictions, with news over the weekend that Terry White Kemart in Waruma had, had become West Australia's first, a development the Pharmacy Guild of Australia described as, as a long overdue advance. West Farmer has already expressed its desire to help with the rollout, suggesting to the federal government that Bunnings or Officeworks car parks could be used to give jabs. And social news media site Reddit is opening an Australian headquarters to massively expand its media and advertising business and to feature more Australian content. Reddit, dubbed the front page of the internet and ranked as the 18th most visited website globally by Alexa Internet, will build its Australian presence from an office at Sydney's Barangaroo. Reddit said it now has 52 million daily active users. It said Australians spent an average of 31 minutes per day on Reddit, which was more than they did on Instagram, Snapchat, Twitter and Pinterest. Australians collectively contributed 158 million posts, comments and votes on the platform every month. Some 62% of Reddit's Australian users were in the 18 to 34-year-old segment, with 28% aged between 35 and 49. The company said a substantial number of its users didn't use Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, Snapchat or TikTok. And women have officially taken over the legal profession in Australia, with 53% of solicitors now female and every state and territory reporting more women lawyers than men for the first time. 
The 2020 National Profile of Solicitors shows women numbers have grown by 45% since 2011 and that women were responsible for 67% of the increase. The report by research firm Ubus recorded 83,643 practicing solicitors as of October 2020. The largest proportion were registered in New South Wales, 43%, followed by Victoria, 25%, and Queensland, 16%. The gradual takeover is demonstrated by the five national profiles to date. The first in 2011 reported that 46% of solicitors were female. In 2014, that number had risen to 48%. By 2016, it was 50%. And in 2018, 52% of all solicitors were women. While most states flipped in, in either 2016 or 2018, Western Australia reported a majority of women as solicitors for the first time in 2020. It was 50-50 in 2018. The ACT, 60%, and the Northern Territory, 61%, had the highest proportion of female solicitors, which, the report said, may be driven by the greater proportion of government solicitors in those jurisdictions. New South Wales Law Society CEO Sonia Stewart, who supervised a project for the Conference of Law Societies, said women were coming into the profession at a ratio of almost two for every one man. And the Federal Labor Party is set to go to the next election vowing to leave untouched the Stage 3 income tax cuts if it forms government, heading off a coalition campaign to portray it as high-taxing and anti-aspirational. Following several days of conversation, Labor's hierarchy has decided against trying to either unwind or amend the cuts if elected. And that's it for this week. And next week, I'll be talking to tech guru Mick Esber, who created the new and innovative app, BAPI, which rates, classifies, and blocks negative, fake, biased, hate, violent, and explicit content using best-in-class technologies. It has been designed to deliver easy-to-use tools for users to manage what they send and receive. It's completely ad-free and does not sell personal data to third parties. And I'll be talking to Indeed economist Callum Pickering about Australia's latest job figures. In the meantime, you can catch me on Facebook, Twitter and LinkedIn. And if you want, leave a comment. Wishing you all a safe and healthy week and looking forward to bringing you Talking Business next week. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey, folks, I'm Mark Marin from the WTF Podcast, and this episode is brought to you by Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues your ally to help tackle your allergy symptoms this season. I love the change of seasons, but nobody loves pollen and all those other things floating in the air that make you sneeze during this nice weather. Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues are hypoallergenic and allergist approved. So fight back against watery eyes and runny noses without worrying about irritating your skin. For this allergy season, grab Kleenex and face allergies head on. 